My name's Sexy, I'm an alcoholic. Through God's grace, strong sponsorship, the 12 steps and 12 traditions of Alcoholics Anonymous. I haven't had a drink since June 4th, 1995, and for that I am truly grateful. I haven't felt the need to chase down an adolescent or an alcoholic because of sitting in the rooms of Al-Anon since about uh, 1997. I want to thank the committee for this honor, because this is truly an honor to do anything for Alcoholics Anonymous, the program that saved my life. Camille was my host. She's one of my grandbabies from Seattle. Greg has been charming, no pressure. <laughs> Cherie, I will answer to any name that rhymes. Trixie, Dixie, Pixie. And Joe Coffey, wherever he is, which he's held my hand, texting, calling, I need this, I need that, into the front desk of this hotel because I called them three times after I checked into this, this room for things that I needed. Your theme for the Summer's Fest is the joy of living, and I've already learned something from you tonight because I did not know that it talked about that in Bill's story. But I did a little homework. I don't have cliff notes like Barb did. I'm not that prepared. I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> so hopefully you know this, because you're reading the books, right? In the 12 steps, and the 12 traditions, it says, in step 12, page 106, the joy of living is the theme of AA's 12th step, and action is its key word. Here we turn outward toward our fellow alcoholics who are still in distress. Here we experience the kind of giving that asks no rewards. Here we begin to practice all 12 steps of the program in our daily lives so that we and those about us may find emotional sobriety. When the 12th step is seen in its full implication, it is really talking about the kind of love that has no price tag on it. So, I don't believe in being born an alcoholic. I wouldn't know. I am adopted. I don't have a family back there to blame things on. You drink um, wine in a box. I was a baby in a box. I was part of the human trafficking that came out of South Korea about two years after the war was over in Korea. They found me as an infant, abandoned on the steps of a building. I also don't believe in abandonment issues. Isn't that odd? <laughs> and I actually came to the country through Portland, Oregon, an entire plane full of babies in boxes. And God's grace was in my life because the people who adopted me actually wanted a boy. And they had the little Korean baby catalog, and they're flipping through the pages of the little baby catalog, and they see my picture, and they changed my, their mind, and they got me. This is not why I'm an alcoholic. This is just part of my story. <laughs> so I was actually, no offense, as I look around this, I was actually adopted by two old white people and raised in Hillbilly, Ohio. <laughs> I tell people that I was raised near Lancaster, Ohio, I was six miles, seven miles down into the hills 
there. Sometimes we had Mickey Mouse, and sometimes we had TV, and sometimes we didn't. And so here I am, isolated in this country life on 18 acres down a long lane that everybody was afraid to drive down, and I started reading. And I could read by the time I went to school. And I went to a very, very small school in Ohio um, called Sugar Grove. If you blink your eyes, you're past it. I was the only full-blooded minority in that school. There was another Japanese family. There was about eight of them. And they were half Japanese, half Caucasian. They seemed to have safety in numbers, and I didn't really have that. This is also not why I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> I'm always looking for the reason, though, right? Well, I didn't even know what alcoholism was until I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. I remember my first drink, I did not take my first drink, grow six feet, grow boobs, turn blonde and blue-eyed. I still was me when I took that first drink. It was no big deal. My parents made wine. They were not alcoholic. Who do I blame for the disease of alcoholism? When I was about uh, 14 years old, my dad got up one night. He had a stroke, he went to the hospital, he never came home. And by the time, six months later, I'd done booze, boys, and drugs. But I still don't think I was an alcoholic yet. I was just doing booze, boys, and drugs, doing what you do when you don't know where to go with that kind of emotion. And my mother took a geographic uh, cure and she moved me to Southern California, where I finished high school. I still was not an alcoholic. It separated me from my peers, so I wasn't doing booze, boys, and drugs. You know, I just looked kind of normal. I was the statistician for the softball football team. I was getting good grades. I was doing what I was supposed to do. And uh, she moved to when I was about 18, and I started smoking pot. And I am not a pot smoker. I am not that kind of an addict, because if I smoke a doobie, I just get stupid, lazy, and paranoid. <laughs> and here I am, 18 years old, laying on this couch, stoned, right? And I've got to support myself. I'm working as a, a waitress in Norm's restaurant, and I'm thinking, man, I cannot smoke this pot and go to work every day. And I picked up a drink, because I was running with people that were older than me. And from that day to this, I've never been able to set it down completely. I've gone long years. I can tell you that marriages will fix me, divorces will fix me, babies will fix me. Certain things will fix me for a long period of time. But nothing fixed me permanently. The day came when I crossed the invisible line. And the thing about the invisible line is, you're way past that thing <laughs> before you have any idea what it is, right? You are beyond all recall. And I have no idea what an alcoholic is, what they look like, you know. I knew something was a little iffy in my life because uh, of one of my husbands. And <laughs> he heard that, right? Okay, so I am a multiple marrier. <laughs> I have been married more than twice and less than five times. <laughs> and I have been divorced more than twice and less than five times. 
I am the kind of alcoholic woman and codependent woman, you stick 100 men in this room, 99 of them are normal drinkers, normal, good, decent men, and you hide one alcoholic in there, and I will sniff him out like a heat-seeking missile, attach to him, take him home, and marry him. <laughs> you are my kind. Ladies, if you don't know he's an alcoholic, you bring him to me if I like him at all. <laughs> you are in trouble, honey. So I'm having these kids, right? I marry my first one and uh, got pregnant. I'm 20 years old. That's not exactly a teen pregnancy, is it? And uh, have this little girl move from California to Ohio because I'm going to fix him, right? He couldn't keep a job, so he's going to learn the construction business, get kicked out, go homeless for a while. I didn't know we were homeless because I didn't know what the meaning of it was. It's not necessarily on the street, but I didn't have an address for like six months. And we're moving from place to place with this little, little baby. You know, then I marry my second one and I have two more kids and I was starting to get a glimpse of what alcoholism was, but I didn't know the name of it. Because this man was a used car salesman, he'd go to work 30 miles away and I would know when he wasn't coming home, right? I'm trying to be Susie Homemaker. Don't I look like Susie Homemaker? And I'm wallpapering rooms, I'm having babies, I'm sewing clothes, I'm making dinner, I'm doing all the right things that you're supposed to do to be a good wife. And about 10 o'clock, his dinner would be in that oven and I'd start pacing that floor and I'd have that feeling in my gut. And about 11 o'clock, I know he is not coming home that night. There's no phones where he is. He's decided to go out drinking with the guys. And every time a car drove up that street, my heart would sink, because I just knew it was the police to come tell me that he was dead. So the last time he was uh, in the house with me, we were meeting for drinks. I over underestimated the amount that he drank. The fight was on, and that was the last time he was in my life. The reason I'm telling you this is because when I crossed that invisible line was with my third husband, and I did not remember what that felt like. The doctor's opinion says we cannot tell the true from the false. It doesn't matter whether you're an alcoholic or the codependent or who you are in the alcohol family home. We cannot tell the truth or the false. That was the only life that I knew. And by the time I get to my third husband where I crossed the invisible line, I had to make a decision then in the very beginning of that relationship. And it was against what I thought was my values. And I could not do it until I bought a bottle of wine, uncorked it, poured the first glass, and I took the first drink of that bottle of wine, and I got that, ah, that sense of ease and comfort. That kind of ease and comfort that only an alcoholic can relate to. And I started drinking for an entirely different reason. It wasn't to be social. It wasn't to have a good time. 
it became my response to life. By the time I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, if it was a good day, I took a drink. If it was a bad day, I took a drink. If it was your birthday, I took a drink. If it was my 12-year-old's birthday, I took a drink. I married into a family with the disease of alcoholism. Before then, I didn't know that you drank on Easter. I didn't know that you drank on Christmas, right? I didn't know what St. Patrick's Day was. You know, I didn't know there was all these occasions to drink. And I just fit right in. The first time that I drank with my mother-in-law, she comes to my house for dinner. She loses an earring on the floor, and she's crawling around on her hands and knees looking for it. Now, a normal person might look at that and say, oh, man, I don't know if I want to be a part of that. But not me. I married that, and I drank with her. And I would sit in the bar with my mother-in-law and make fun of my ex-husband, her son, who was at home taking care of my three kids, he was their stepfather, about what a stuffed shirt he was. Never remembered pacing the floor waiting for my husband to come home. Never remembered that sinking feeling. Never remembered any of that. Because I knew what that sense of ease and comfort was. When I was drinking, and I wanted to get there fast, I drank Crown Royal on the rocks, just straight up, Crown Royal. If I wasn't drinking, I was drinking beer. <laughs> I started out drinking, what is it, vodka and grapefruit juice, right? Because I didn't like the taste of the vodka. And I was getting drunk too fast on the vodka and grapefruit juice. So I thought, oh, I'll switch to something that I don't like and that'll slow me down, right? So I switched to white wine. Chardonnay was my drink. I could drink it like water, I thought. But you know, in the end, my lover betrayed me. My lover betrayed me. I could drink one glass of wine and be carried out of the back of the bar. I could drink three bottles of wine and I could not shut off the voices in my head. I could not get that sense of ease and comfort again. It was gone. Now, I'm not very big. Not very small either, but I'm not very big. And this guy that I was married to, he's only a couple inches taller than I was, and I am a violent, abusive alcoholic. When I drink and I get drunk enough, the fight was on. And the last Christmas that we were, we were together, the fight was on. And it ended up that his brother had me on the floor with his knee across my chest and his cousin had him up against the wall so we would not kill each other. And before that event, I'm laying in the basement with my last glass of wine watching the movie Dave. <laughs> it was dark. The rest of the family is upstairs. They're playing whatever Christmas Trivial Pursuit or whatever they're playing, I can hear their voice, and I'm laying on that couch in that basement with my glass of wine in my self-pity, wondering when is Christmas going to start for me? The last six months of my drinking, I woke up every morning wanting to be dead. Now, I know that's an oxymoron to wake up dead, but that's what I wanted, and every morning I was disappointed. Every day I thought about killing myself. And I would sit in our bedroom, and it was god-awful colors. The carpet was red, and the wallpaper was pink with flowers on it. <laughs> and it was an old house in Ohio, and with the registers, right? And I could hear 
the laughter of my children and the voice of my ex-husband two floors below me in the basement floating up to that register like a distant memory and I could hear them down there playing games and I'm sitting up in that bedroom with another bottle of wine wanting to slip my wrists. I had the only thing sharp enough in the house to do it. It was a handmade fillet knife. I bought at an art show and I tested it on my sweatpants and it cut through my sweatpants like butter. And I am so selfish and so self-centered. I think this, nobody cares about me anyway. And this is gonna be no big deal because if I cut my wrists, the carpet's red, the blood's red, it'll, you know, it'll be easy to clean up. Never a thought of how it's gonna affect somebody else. So the day came when he was my problem. I knew if he'd just leave me alone, if I could get away with him, from him, that I wouldn't feel the way that I was feeling, I wouldn't be doing the things that I was doing. And so I kicked him out. But that was after a little stint that I did in the psych ward because see, I did not want to be an alcoholic. I wanted to be crazy. Crazy seemed just a little bit more respectable. So I go to this psych ward and it was great. It was great. I get locked up, meaning my boss, my husband, my kids cannot get to me. I have no responsibility. I do not have to cook, clean, take care of anybody. They are giving me really good drugs. And if you get with the right therapist, and at the time I was, had had a lot of therapy. I've had enough therapy to kill a horse. You get it with the right therapist at the time they're telling, you just need to take better care of yourself. You just need to come first. You just need, it's your turn now. So, you know, I'm sitting in therapy, you know, saying it's my turn now and I just give and I'm a martyr and I'm this and I'm that. Never talking about alcohol. So I go to the psych ward and they let me out two days later and I was really upset, really <laughs> upset. And so I decided he was my problem and I kicked him out. And then I decided maybe that was not a good idea and why don't you come back and he was done. So I thought it'd be a really good idea if I got drunk. And I got drunk. And that night I took my trusty rebel camera and a bath towel because I knew I was gonna puke. I got in my little mommy minivan. I drove across town and I stopped in front of his place because he had told me he was dating Candy, Mandy, and Sandy, right? And I stop across from his place because I'm gonna catch him and take a, a picture, right? <laughs> so I stopped there, turned the van off, and this voice in my head starts saying, what am I doing? What am I doing? What am I doing? What am I doing? And I turned the van back on and I drove across town and by now it was time for my kids to get up and go to school and I screamed at my kids, sent them off to school and I called off work, laid down on the couch and passed out. And I came to about one o'clock in the afternoon and I had that crusty feeling that you have when you've puked on yourself after a drunk and you haven't cleaned up. You know, your eyes are a little crusty, your mouth is a little crusty. I looked bad, felt bad, smelled bad. And you know, that moment of clarity we talk about, that was it. 
I came to on that couch and I saw myself, felt myself, smelled myself, and I thought, oh my God, if anybody knew what I was doing, they would call um, children's services and they would take my kids away from me. I thought, I am an unfit mother. And I thought, I have got to stop drinking. And then I did my first step. And my next thought was, I cannot stop drinking. I can't stop drinking. By that time, all I wanted to do was go seven days without a drink. And I could not go seven days without a drink. I come to the middle of the week. That's not a good time not to drink. That's hump day. I have to drink on hump day. <laughs> so then there was Friday. Right? The end of the week, I worked hard all week, and I played softball. You cannot play softball and not drink after the game. Always a reason to drink, never a reason not to drink. But that morning I saw the truth, that I couldn't stop no matter what I did. And a few months prior to that, I read this Time magazine that talked about the most influential men of the century. And there was this little one-page thing with Bill W. standing in his kitchen in a white tank top talking about his being one, the founder of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I was sitting on the bed at the time with a glass of wine thinking, oh, isn't that cute, and flipped the page. Six months later, I picked up the phone and I called Alcoholics Anonymous. I looked it up in the phone book. Remember the big yellow phone book? Looked in the yellow pages. It is not the first A. In case you ever have to look, it is not the first day in the yellow pages. I called the 1-800 number for Columbus, Ohio, and I got this really nice lady on the phone, and I started doing my alcoholic war cry, which is, he's an alcoholic, she's an alcoholic, they're alcoholics, and I'm a victim. And I still started telling her my tale of woe, and she says, well, maybe you should go to Al-Anon. But I have been running my mouth as long as I've been sober and even when I wasn't. So on that phone call, I just kept running my mouth until something came out and she heard something about my drinking. And she says, well, maybe you should try AA. And I said, okay, maybe I should. The following Sunday, I went to an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting, my very first one in Lancaster, Ohio. My last drink, if I would have known it was my last drink, I would have done it better. I was working part-time at a bar, the bar was closed, I wanted a glass of Chardonnay, all they had was white Zinfandel. Oh. oh! So I had a water glass of white Zinfandel, right? I gagged it down anyway. I did not know that was my last drink. Or I would have bought a case or done something. I didn't even get drunk. Like, how cheated is that? The next day I go to my very first Alcoholics Anonymous meeting in Lancaster, Ohio, which probably now has a population of about 65,000. With a 4% minority population, I was one of the four. My other three kids probably made up a part of that percentage. I drive into this meeting late. I am in my uh, Chrysler Plymouth mommy minivan. I was a soccer mom, and uh, I had my little sleeveless shirt on, my little white shorts, because I was married to one of the up-and-coming attorneys in the town. 
So I'm going to slide into this Alcoholics Anonymous meeting like newcomers do. We just kind of slither in, right? And nobody's going to notice I'm, I'm new. Not so. <laughs> we know who you are. You're sitting in the back and your palms are sweaty. Anyway, so I go to this Alcoholics Anonymous meeting and they're talking about stuff that I've never heard about. Big book, steps, serenity, sobriety, one day at a time. All the language of the heart that we start talking when we come to the rooms, right? And they go around the room and everybody introduces themselves and they came around to me. And for the very first time, I said, my name is Pixie and I'm an alcoholic. And from that day to this one, I have not taken that back. I am just as alcoholic today as I was 24 years ago. And they did what the group is supposed to do. If you're a good group, this is what you do with the newcomer. They choo. <laughs> and I am surrounded, right? And I start doing my alcoholic war cry. She's an alcoholic, he's an alcoholic, they're alcoholics, and I'm a victim. And they start patting me on the head and patting me on the head. And they say, keep coming back, and here's a newcomer's packet, and blah, 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 and blah, blah, blah. And everybody dwindles away, except for one old guy. <laughs> you know which old guy this is, right? So he's standing out in the parking lot talking to me. And he starts talking to me about things that I'm going, hmm, is that what you really talk about in Alcoholics Anonymous? And if you don't know what step he was working, I'll tell you later. <laughs> and it shows that God uses everything. Because he gave me the phone number of a woman, and he says, this woman has been through what you were going to go through. She was married to somebody prominent in this town, and she divorced him. And she's got the experience that you're going to, need, going to need to get through the divorce that you're going to go through. <laughs> and he was right. I divorced that guy, that particular husband. I didn't really want to. But I have a little advice if you want to go back out or if you're still drinking and you want to get drunk and make somebody really, really mad, do not marry an attorney. So I was divorcing an attorney in, in early sobriety, and he had me in court for the first five years of my sobriety. I ran out of money, and they would um, look at me in the meeting and says, God knows truth, the judges know truth, you're never alone in that courtroom. And I would run out of money and I would just pray and I'd walk into that courtroom and I'd face whatever I had to face. Or I'd go to mediation and I'd do whatever I had to do. I fought until I couldn't fight anymore. And I start going to meeting after meeting after meeting. I didn't have a sponsor for the first 30 days. And uh, what, what I uh, found out was, oh, <laughs> Siri found it for me. What time is it? What I found out was, it's so important how we behave in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous because I was eavesdropping on your conversations. If you said I went to 90 and 90, I went to 90 and 90. And in Ohio, newcomers have to go around and shake 
the hand of every single person in the room and introduce themselves. It's just what they do in Ohio, right? And I am a really smart alcoholic, so I started going to the meetings super, super early. There'd be like five people there, and then everybody had to come to me. <laughs> I'm riding in the back of cars, listening to the stories of getting sober, and they said, go early and stay late. My brain was so fried, by the time I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, I thought I had Alzheimer's or dementia. I was a legal assistant, and I could not get a phone number from here to there without, rem right? I thought something was seriously wrong with me. Well, there was, but it was not dementia, you know? Um, and they started talking about that. I couldn't remember how to do a lot of things when I first got sober, but I had been a waitress for a very, very long time. I think the politically correct thing now is to say server. <laughs> I've been a server for a very long time. So I went to the Sunday morning breakfast meeting and I knew how to make coffee. I knew how to fill the sugar dispensers. I knew how to do all that waitress stuff to open up a dining room. And I would go very early because I couldn't sleep. I was waking up at 5 o'clock, 5.30 in the morning. So you, I want what you've got and I heard you over talking uh, overheard you talking about this big book, and I'm like, big book, big book, what's a big book, right? It's our secret code, the big book. So I went to a Tuesday night speaker meeting in Lancaster, Ohio, I rode my 10-speed bike there, and after the meeting I got up enough courage to say, I need a big book. And the man said, no problem, here's a big book, and he gives me the hard copy of the big book, and I say, how much is it? And I, he tells me, I don't know, it's probably $6 back then. I have no idea. And I said, I don't have $6. And he says, no problem. We'll give you the big book. So I go out to my 10-speed bike, and I'm just going to stuff this big book into my waistband and ride home with it. <laughs> it doesn't fit. <laughs> so I have to go back in, you know, just so... For me to ask for help for anything, every time I asked for help for the first four years, I would sob. Will you sponsor me? I need another big book. <laughs> and he gave me a big book. He gave me the paperback, and I put it in my waistband, and I rode home, and I laid on my couch, and I read the first 164 pages. And that's how I knew I was an alcoholic. Because if I have to look like you, especially this crowd, I am never going to fit in. If I have to drink the way you drank, I am never going to fit in. I've never had a DUI. I've never been to jail. I've never been to prison except after I was sober. <laughs> and that was to carry the message. Thank you very much. <laughs> yet, yet. <laughs> But it talked about the Jekyll and Hyde, and I was the Jekyll and Hyde. You put alcohol in me and the fight's on. I'm gonna try to make you hit me. I tried to make that former husband hit me. I wanted to, people to see how I felt. And when the pain's all on the inside, I have to have something showing on the outside. He was the cause of all of my problems. If it wasn't him, it was my adoptive mother. If it wasn't her, it was those kids in school. I had all these things that had power over me. It was my reason for being who I was.
I read in the big book, and I love this, that women don't have to drink for very long or very much to be beyond recall. I am a woman beyond all recall. I drank alcoholically for six years through a marriage and landed in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. I believe in the books. I, every Monday, I went to a, a 12 and 12 study. And when I wasn't doing that, I was going to big book studies. In Ohio, we never, suggest going, we never suggested for anybody to go to comment meetings. You either went to big book studies or you went to lead meetings. We didn't want the newcomer to hear anybody's opinion. We wanted them to stay in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And that just, that's just how I was raised. I was raised on both books. I know there's sometimes two camps, big book thumpers and 12 and 12 thumpers. If I sponsor you, you need to have both books with you. I can't quote it, but I know generally where the answer to whatever it is we're discussing is in that big book. And I'll tell you to go look for it. So here I am, early sobriety. This guy has got me in going to court all the time. I am detoxing out of my desk. I didn't know what treatment was. I said, treatment? What's treatment? And in treatment, in my mind was, they suck out all your blood, and they give you a transfusion of new blood, and boom, you're not an alcoholic anymore, right? <laughs> and they had to sit me down and tell me what treatment was. And then they started talking about um, relapse and being a retread. And the relapsers and the retreaders were saying, oh, and there was a sign in treatment that said relapse is a part of the pro a process. And I would used to run with these mean old timers, right? And I'm like talking about when I relapse and they grabbed me, it felt like, <laughs> and drug me outside and said, you never have to drink again. Relapse is not a part of the process. Sometimes it is. And uh, they raised me in Alcoholics Anonymous. I went through those five years of court with that guy and didn't take a drink. And there were times that the only part of that meeting I made was the Lord's Prayer. I can remember one time he had me in mediation and I had to drive 30 miles away. I couldn't make that meeting, but I made it for the Lord's Prayer and I hooked up. So, life has been in session. The joy of living says I have to love unconditionally. I have to give of myself when I don't want to give of myself. I've been sponsoring women since I was about six months sober. And that could be anywhere from five to 20 at one time. I have never had a desire to work in a treatment center because I sponsor enough women. It's like, man, I don't want to do this all the time, right? And giving to them, I got sober. I could see myself in them. I could tell my story to them. And sometimes a little bit of my truth would slip out of my mouth. You ever been standing in the parking lot telling your story and all of a sudden the truth comes out and you're like, oh, give me, I didn't want to hear that, right? I didn't want to hear that. So I've heard a lot of fifth steps, I've done a lot of fourth steps, and now my fourth step, my personal fourth step, is very, very simple. I might start out with those columns, but I might only go a minute or two, and the very bottom of it, it'll be, what am I afraid of? I believe in strong sponsorship. My sponsor is a strong sponsor. Man, she told me to do shit that I thought, oh my God, I can't do this. And I've actually told her, I don't think I could do this. And she says, well, <laughs> What would you tell the woman that you sponsor? <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
I can tell you there's three times in my uh, sobriety that I didn't do what she told me to do, and there's been three times in my sobriety that I totally regretted not doing what she told me to do. Yeah. So great events will come to pass for you and me. Life has been in session. I had good relationship with my kids at one time, and then it got bad, and it's bad at the moment, and I realized that that's God's grace. They are not mine. I have the sponsor that I have now because she talked about her son who was trying to kill himself and an old timer came to her after a convention and said, you've got to go back to the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. We agnostics and God is either everything or he is nothing and what God does with his kids is none of your business. <sighs> <laughs> My two younger children are, are males, they both were Marines. That very youngest one went to Afghanistan, and I learned to let go at an entirely different level. Whatever he's doing now, not around me is fine, but he is not in Afghanistan. And doing that was like taking a drink. I either could read, had to stay totally away from it, because if I read the first article about it, I was there for six hours reading articles about Afghanistan. Total abstinence. I had to learn not to worry in my mind and to surround him with positive light and energy, like worrying in my mind is ever going to change anything. I had to learn to make amends to my children by doing what they ask, which is leave them alone. If he tells me to leave him alone, I have to leave him alone. And I'm going to love him unconditionally. He can come around any time, and I love them unconditionally. But I think that loving is having. I think that loving is controlling. I would control and enjoy every single one of you if I could. <laughs> but you are like alcohol to me. I cannot control the wine and enjoy it at the same time. If I had to control it, I couldn't enjoy it. And I was really angry. And that would mean that I got really drunk on whatever I was drinking at the time. So. You talked about your mother. Like, if you haven't had a resentment about, against your mother, well, I don't know, right? So God and my mother, my adopted mother, are top two on my list, God and my mother. I have to blame somebody. I'm always giving my power away. It's your fault that I feel the way that I do. It's your fault that I am who I am. It's your fault that I drank. So it was God's fault, my mother's fault, and all those people's fault, and I'm not white, I'm not blonde, I'm not blue-eyed, all these reasons, right? I am the way that I am. So when it came time to make amends to my mother, I couldn't go to the nursing home by myself, so at first I took a couple little dogs, and that would distract her from me, and that's how I could do it. But by the time she died, I knew I had to get my side of the sidewalk clean. And she was in a nursing home for nine years up until the time of her death. So they called me at uh, the law office that I worked in, and they said hospice had been called. And that was, I didn't know what hospice was, and I tend to get a little, um, act like an attorney when I'm backed into a corner. And I said, look, do I need to come now or not? And they said, you need to come now. And that Friday night, I had to speak at a meeting in Bremen, Ohio. And that was really close to the nursing home that she was in. And I went to see her before the meeting. And she had congestive heart failure. She's just dying of old age. That's all it was, right? And she was in the bed. And she couldn't remember my name. 
And the last Mother's Day I went to her, my amends to her was to just go to her and treat her like my mother, whether she'd call me by name or not. And the last Mother's Day I was with her, I was with her visiting, and I was telling her the stories about my life, and I was telling her that, you know, I knew how she felt when she didn't know where I was. And I started tears rolling down my face. And she wanted to comfort me, but she wasn't sure how. And she just reaches over and pats me on the knee. And she says, oh, honey, you are the best cake I've ever baked. So I go to speak at this meeting and I go visit her first and she always knew she recognized me probably because I was the only Asian within a hundred miles, right? And she was happy to see me and I crawled up on her bed and I just put my arms around her and I rocked her a little bit. And if I would sing to her, she would calm down. And I'm up on her bed, and my arms are around her, and I start singing to her. And the only songs that I could remember were Jesus Loves Me, Amazing Grace, and How Great Thou Art. And in one fell swoop, my higher power takes care of my top two resentments. And the next morning, it was time to leave, or I needed to get, to get back to my son, and I'm just dawdling. You know, just... You know how you do, straighten the book that's already in place, straighten the picture, just wasting time. And I got to be there when my mother took her very last breath. And I left that room, and she hadn't been a mother to me for years. And I went to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. And the next morning I went to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous and there was a newcomer at my table and I grabbed her and I said, my name's Pixie, I'm an alcoholic. If you don't have a sponsor, I'll sponsor you. And that's what you taught me. If I'm working with that newcomer, no matter what life gives me, I get the joy of living. I get to see people's lives change right before me, and as a result of that, I get to change. And it does, I don't have to have money. I don't have to have time. I just have to suit up and show up and be willing to do the next thing in front of me to do. Since then, I met and fell in love with many men, but there was one. <laughs> I heard him speak at a meeting, just not a meeting like this, but a meeting. And I thought, oh my God, I'm falling in love with this guy. And then I said a little prayer and I said, God, could I have him by cr Christmas? <laughs> right? So we were going out by Memorial Day. And we're going down the road of happy destiny. You know, you want to be Mr. and Mrs. AA. Come on, you've got to admit that's everybody's fantasy. Mr. and Miss Recovery, right? So we're going down the road of happy destiny. And then, you know, he starts getting a little bellyache. We go out to the powwow in the desert. I don't know if you've been there out in um, Indian Wells in California. And he can't keep any food down. We go back home and I'm nagging him like every day, you gotta go to the doctor, you gotta go to the doctor, won't go. Finally, he does go to the doctor and I said, it's gallbladder, no problem, it's gallbladder. He goes and has this test and it was only by a God shot. They didn't even have his records. His family physician had not arranged for the test. And God sent somebody to me. I called the office, and they got him in through a cancellation. And he called me a few days later, and he says, I have cancer. And 10 months from diagnosis to death, he died of stomach cancer. And by the time he died, I knew that God was everything or he was nothing.
He came out of surgery. His hair was perfect. I mean, what, the, what is that, right? Under a surgical, he had this perfect hair, and I looked in his eyes, and they were clear. And I knew that I was looking in the eyes of an angel. And we went to meetings, no matter what. There were meetings in that hospital. And we would toddle down to that room carrying an IV pump and um, morphine pump. And if somebody wanted, they'd say, who's willing to be a sponsor? And at 80 pounds, he would raise his hand to be a sponsor. So I don't have much sympathy when my babies say, I'm too tired, I'm too sick, I'm too this, I'm too that, to go to a meeting. And he taught me what recovery was, and he taught me how to die with dignity. And by the time he let me go, because I had let him go, because I knew God was either everything or he was nothing. And I didn't have to drink one day at a time. And I had a sponsor. I was in Ohio. She was in California. And she was more available to me than his sponsor was sitting right next to him. She taught me through the way her actions what unconditional love was. She taught me how to be a sober woman in Alcoholics Anonymous. She taught me that no matter what happened, that the answers were the big book and the 12 and 12, and the answer is either going to get me God closer or God farther away. What's it going to be? So, there's lots of promises, right, in books. And I'd like to close my uh, talk tonight with this one, if I can grow longer arms. <laughs> You notice we started with the 12 step in the 12 and 12, and I'm going to end with the forward in the 12 and 12, because I love this. AA's 12 steps are a group of principles, spiritual in their nature, which, if practiced as a way of life, can expel the obsession to drink and enable the sufferer to become happily and usefully whole. Thanks to you, the 12 steps, 12 traditions, and strong sponsorship, you've rendered me usefully whole. I love you.